Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on the recent and ongoing developments surrounding the U.S. debt ceiling and what investors need to know. Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome back Tom McLaughlin, head of fixed income for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy. So, Tom, Shane, thank you both for dropping by. Looking forward to the conversation. Good morning, Dan. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So to get started, Tom, maybe we can bring our listeners up to speed a bit. I recall that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen did announce that the U.S. government hit the debt ceiling. This is going back to last Thursday. We're recording today on Monday, January 23rd. And that led to a lot of discussion about why we have such a ceiling to begin with. So maybe, Tom, to start, could you start by speaking to how we got to where we are today, how we got to this point? Yeah, sure thing, Dan. Uh, it's probably worth giving everybody a quick definition. Uh, the debt ceiling is a statutory limit on the aggregate amount of debt that the federal government uh, can accrue over time. Uh, the limit is set by Congress, uh, which retains the power of the purse under the U.S. Constitution. And it applies uh, critically to almost all federal debt, including debt held by the U.S. public, by foreign investors, as well as debt that the U.S. government effectively owes to itself, such as Social Security and Medicare trust funds. Uh, the, the, I think the debt ceiling itself is a bit of an historical oddity. Uh, until 1917, uh, Congress authorized borrowing for very specific purposes, the most famous example being the construction of the Panama Canal. But in, in the run-up to the First World War, Congress delegated authority to the Treasury to sell liberty bonds uh, to finance the war effort, again, in the First World War, with some restrictions. Uh, effectively, Congress realized that there was going to be repeated rounds of votes to authorize debt, so they delegated some authority to the Treasury. And then on the eve of the Second World War, Congress granted broader authority to the Treasury Secretary, um, effectively for the same reason uh, the war effort was going to require a lot of cash and, and funding. Uh, so the Treasury at that point was given the authority to manage the national debt subject to an aggregate limit. Uh, it's worth noting that very, very few um, OECD developed countries actually have a debt limit, um, and uh, most of them that do actually have a very large or a very, very high limit, so they don't have to come back as we do here in the States and have to revisit this periodically. Anyway, all of that brings us to the letter that you mentioned from Secretary Yellen um, about 10 days ago. Uh, that was a bit sooner than we expected, uh, and it it does not itself constitute a firm deadline to raise the debt ceiling because the Treasury Department can use what is called extraordinary measures, quote-unquote, um, to pay the federal government's bills uh, for another few months. Uh, she suggested that the X date, uh, which is best defined as the date on which the U.S. government reaches both the debt ceiling, which we're at now, and at the date on which it can no longer manage its liquidity through these extraordinary measures. She suggested that uh, the date is sometime in early June. I would mention that it's fairly traditional for Secretaries of Treasury to send this type of letter and to be a little conservative in the initial estimates. And that's sensible because a lot will depend on the cash flow derived from the income tax receipts on April 15th. So effectively, she's basically posted a warning flag uh, for members of Congress for the congressional leadership, indicating that at some point beginning in early June, it's probably going to be closer to July, I think, 
where we hit that point where having reached the debt ceiling already, we're in a position where they've run out of accounting maneuvers in order to preserve the liquidity they have, at which point, because the federal government runs annual operating deficits, additional debt will have to be floated. I get some questions as to what extraordinary measures include. Uh, among other things, the Treasury is going to start by redeeming Treasury securities from civil service retirement funds and other federal employee retirement programs. And the, the government will also suspend new contributions into those retirement programs. And there are a bunch of other accounting maneuvers as well. So we're in a position right now um, where we're in a bit of a stasis here because we're, the Secretary of the Treasury has looked to Congress in order to basically come to some sort of political compromise in order to raise the debt ceiling. And that's why I, uh, I think probably Shane's in a better position than I to describe what's going on in Capitol Hill today. Well, Tom, thank you very much for that historical context. Very helpful for our listeners. To your point, Tom, yes, do want to welcome Shane into the conversation. Shane, maybe you can bring our listeners, our clients up to speed with respect to the current state of play within Washington, D.C., in terms of where both Republicans and Democrats stand on this debt ceiling issue and the probability that both parties can come together to reach a resolution in time to avert a default. Yeah, well, again, thanks, Dan, for having me. And, you know, I think this is going to be uh, pretty much the biggest issue of at least the first half of this year. So, um, you know, I think it's great that we're talking about it now to kind of level set and, you know, help everyone understand that you're, you're going to hear about this a lot over this coming month. So, you know, as of today, where are we, you know, in uh, mid late January, um, you know, both sides are starting to, you know, position themselves and digging in the heels. You know, President Biden and Democrats are saying they want a uh, debt ceiling increase that is clean, which is to say that, you know, Congress just passes a, a bill that solely increases the debt ceiling and moves on. Well, Republicans, um, as they have a few times in the past, are, are, are positioning to, uh, include other measures uh, to accompany such an increase. What they would like to do here is include measures to, you know, rein in uh, the, the deficit spending in uh, the federal government to try and get, a, a you know, some accountability into the system. You know, they're very frustrated that, you know, we have a, a federal debt of over $31 trillion, and they'd really like to see some you know, progress being made on how do we actually, you know, focus on that and, you know, don't keep digging ourselves into a deeper hole. You know, um, Republicans, you know, mostly led by Speaker McCarthy, have already called on President Biden to, you know, sit down and start negotiating. And, and President Biden and others essentially are saying, listen, it should be a clean debt telling you this is not something we negotiate on. This is about the full faith and credit of the United States. It's non-negotiable. But, you know, um, speaking the other day, President Biden, you know, kind of opened up the door and said, you know, I'll be speaking to uh, Speaker McCarthy about the debt ceiling. The uh, White House later tried to clarify the remarks and say that, well, President Biden will be speaking to uh, Speaker McCarthy, you know, as they do regularly to discuss a variety of issues. So, you know, I think Republicans are, uh, anticipate and are, are positioning themselves for such negotiations. But you're also seeing um, other senators and representatives from both parties kind of speak up and try and 
get some uh, um, understanding that, you know, this should be bipartisan. You know, um, uh, Senator Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, has said, let's have negotiations, you know, uh, whereas, you know, you've seen uh, Senate senators, Republican senators, you know, say, you know, we're not going to default. And some are interpreting that as they'll vote for a clean debt ceiling. I think that's a little bit ahead of ourselves. But there is recognition that, you know, in divided government, somehow, in some way, um, it's probably going to be a bipartisan solution that gets us through us. You know, historically, when you look at the debt ceiling increase and how it's been done in previous years, it's actually been easiest when it's been one party rule. You know, at the end of 2021, Democrats uh, were able to do that with a little bit of blessing from Republicans, you know, especially in the Senate to get over a cloture motion. Um, or when President Trump was in uh, the White House and had Republicans in the House and Senate, you know, those were done with less fanfare, we'll say. Now, in divided government, we've seen this before. Um, in, back in 2011, when you had President Obama uh, in the White House, that brought some drama to it. And that really, you know, um, got the attention of markets, we'll say. So, you know, I think we're headed this year. Um, for a more dramatic debt ceiling increase. And while we do believe the debt ceiling will be eventually increased, uh, we're keeping a very close eye on how this issue develops because it can have a real-world uh, market impact. And, you know, I think that's, you know, to some degree where we're heading because of the positioning of both parties that they're going to make this uh, probably a, a contentious fight. So, Tom, as Shane pointed out, while both parties do want to achieve a resolution, there does not appear to be, at least at the moment, total alignment in terms of a method or means to do so. And, of course, we know markets don't like uncertainty. As Shane was alluding to, there might be some choppy waters ahead. So how have markets reacted on prior occasions, Tom, when Congress has bumped up against the X state, so to speak? And how are markets likely to react here in 2023? And what should investors really do? And how should they be thinking about this in context of their portfolio performance? Yeah, sure thing, Dan. I, you know, debt selling votes were considered to be rather routine events uh, for the first 20 or 30 years in the post-war period. Uh, and they don't really become particularly contentious until the size of the accumulated federal deficit began to grow uh, significantly. Uh, I guess the, the two um, historical notes we have that are probably closer to what we're going to experience this year is 2011 and 2013. So we spent some time looking at that. And based on those two experiences, and 2011 was particularly contentious, um, pricing among fixed income markets became very distorted. So in the fixed income space, the short end of the treasury curve, that is the, effectively, we consider this the kind of the treasury bill curve, became very, it became much less liquid. It inverted. Uh, because uh, investors were demanding higher yields on securities, treasury securities, that were coinciding with the upcoming X date. Again, the X date being the date at which the treasury uh, effectively depletes its own liquidity. Short-term funding markets uh, froze up a bit. Uh, there were questions over collateral postings, so that, for example, in 2011, there were some institutions that refused to accept certain treasury bills uh, as, as eligible collateral, which is quite astonishing. So there is the fixed income market is generally the first to react, and it will become distorted if Congress doesn't act as we approach the X date. 
for it, it's not going to matter much, I don't think, for the next couple of months because we've got about a four-month window here. But as we get within 30 days of the X date, then you could reasonably expect some of the distortion that I mentioned. Equity markets are harder to pin down uh, for a couple of reasons. First, in some cases, equity mark, equity investors have a greater tendency to brush off the impacts of the debt selling crisis than do fixed income investors. Again, probably because uh, the short-term funding markets tend to react much more quickly than the equity markets. Uh, and secondly, that there are other factors that you have to consider. So, for example, in 2011, the S&P declined um, from kind of a peak to trough. It was down more than 15%, which is quite significant. But the financial markets at the same time were dealing with the Eurozone crisis, which probably compounded the challenge in 2011. Two years later, in 2013, the macro conditions globally were more supportive and the market, the equity market, that is, were up 2% in the one-month period ahead of the 2013 X date. So I guess the conclusion is that what we could reasonably expect is that the fixed income markets are much more likely to react as the X date approaches in June or July than will necessarily the equity market. The equity market could react. The, the historical references are just less clear. Uh, in terms of what happens, this is, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, and as Shane pointed out, our base case is we're not going to have a default. Um, cooler heads will prevail, and there'll be an expectation and acknowledgement that what we're doing in raising the debt ceiling is simply paying for appropriations that were going to be made by Congress. But there are positions being staked out, and it's worth reminding investors what happens in the event of default, right? And again, I want to emphasize this is not the base case, but in that kind of an instance, federal expenditures and transfer payments become curtailed quite dramatically. Social Security checks are withheld, veterans' benefits, active duty military pay, Medicare reimbursements. There's a whole laundry list of expenditures. And the economic impact of that is quite significant. Um, so you have a situation where U.S. Treasury securities are the foundation upon which basically all of the fixed income instruments on the planet are valued. Uh, and even in an indirect basis, a lot of financial markets outside fixed income are valued. So when you basically... Uh, have a suspicion that it's possible that the uh, treasury market could experience a default, the pricing becomes untethered and the cost of capital for borrowers rises, uh, consumer confidence declines, the dollar de becomes devalued. There's, again, another laundry list of economic impacts that are quite significant. So from perspective of what do investors do, uh, we expect that you know initially the short end of the curve would rise because people investors are going to demand more as we kind of wrestle with this whole debt selling, even if that incident, that, that, that time period is fairly compressed. Uh, consumer loans and residential mortgages rise, credit spreads widen. This whole notion of credit spreads widening, that is the, 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 uh, the notion of credit becoming more difficult to discern in the absence of a risk-free security. You would expect things like high-yield bonds to be more exposed to repricing than, say, municipal securities or mini-bonds, because mini-bonds could conceivably be viewed as a bit of a safe haven. In terms of equities, as we get really close to that X date, you'd expect industrials, healthcare, and financials to be probably more exposed uh, than other sectors. Healthcare has some defensive attributes, which could, could you know, uh, cushion the blow, and we've seen that over the course of the last 12 months. But when you when you consider these sectors are either more closely tied to the financial markets and the fixed income markets like financials or are tied basically more closely to what the federal government is doing in terms of transfer payments. And here we're thinking about health care, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, as well as 
uh, industrials, which are tied, obviously, to the, the Defense Department to some degree anyway. So from an equities, from equities exposure, it's industrials, it's healthcare, it's financials. In fixed income, it's uh, higher-yielding credit-exposed uh, securities. And these are places where we'd have to be a bit uh, cautious. And I would just say one other thing, which is that, again, to emphasize, it's not our base case that we'll actually have a default. But And it's also not in the next two months probably going to be the issue. It'll be in that 30- to 40-day period where Congress is really focusing on this in a big way. We actually have an X date from the Treasury Secretary, so we know what that is. That'll that'll come in a while. And at that point, that'll be where the market begins to start reacting. Well, Tom, that was very helpful as far as helping us to manage expectations and for our listeners and investors to navigate their portfolios over the course of the next few months. It sounds like we have a bit of runway ahead of us, though, as Shane pointed out at this point, both sides still not aligning to reach a resolution, though it sounds like from the base case, the U.S. will not default. But Shane, I do want to point out, it's important to do so, that there are other issues that Congress and the president must, of course, address. So of those related to the budget and others pertain to regulation and, of course, geopolitics. You can't forget that. Are there some topics that merit closer attention by our listeners? Absolutely. I wanted to jump in and um, mention one thing on X date, as the X date before I jump to those other issues, which is I think we'll get some clarity on when the X date is after um, the April tax filing season. That's when we'll you know know a little bit better about you know, the inflow of revenue, which may move the X date, you know, back a little bit to that July scenario if we get an influx of revenue, um, or maybe it moves it closer, you know, and earlier to Memorial Day. But you're right, there are a, a host of other issues going on that we have to uh, keep an eye on. On the geopolitical side, you know, um, we can't forget that there is a war in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, we're, everyone's expecting a, uh, offensive by Russia in the spring. So I think that we should ha- be cognizant of as, um, you know, we get closer to the spring. Cause, you know, while the, the war is not really impacting the markets, uh, right now, you know, it, there could be a turn in the war in the spring that does impact markets. You know, coming back to stateside though, you're right. Besides the debt ceiling, there are other budgetary matters. Um, you know, uh, current government funding will expire at the end of September. And if no legislation is passed at that time to fund government operations, there could be a government shutdown. Uh, so that is a, a real possibility in what will be a contentious year. Obviously, you know, we'll have to get closer to those negotiations as time goes on to see if that uh, a government shutdown is a real possibility. But it, I think in a contentious year like this, it's something we we absolutely have to keep an eye on. Um, you know, oversight uh, and congressional investigations will take up a lot of uh, time and energy from House Republicans. So I think that's something to keep an eye on, you know, and that covers a long list of issues. You know, China, Hunter Biden, the FBI and the Department of Justice, um, the uh, handling of classified information. So, you know, that uh, will be something to pay attention to, may not be as um, market sensitive as other things, but it will definitely be uh, an item that takes up time in Washington. Um, But I think something that should be mentioned as well is an aggressive regulatory agenda from the Biden administration. You know, knowing that uh, we are in um, 
uh, divided government, you know, the Biden administration recognizes that they're not going to be able to pass as much as they were the, the previous two years. So uh, they'll be focusing a lot on regulatory actions, you know, and climate change will be a focus. Um, and to that end, I'll give you one example. You know, last year, the uh, Democrats were able to pass the Inflation Reduction Act into law, and they'll be implementing that. And, you know, for one example is, you know, uh, Treasury in March is expected to release regulations regarding the uh, electric vehicle uh, tax credit. So a lot of car companies are paying, going to be paying close attention to those regulations. So it's going to be a busy year, um, you know, maybe a head-spinning year in some respect. But there'll be a lot of uh, actions coming out of D.C. that, you know, may not be as big and impactful as the debt ceiling, but some of them will have an impact in certain segments. Well, there's a lot there to be mindful of, and I'm sure, Shane, will cover many of these topics on the Washington Weekly podcast as well throughout the course of 2023. Real quickly, before we wrap up, Tom, I understand this question has come up, so uh, worth spending a few moments on it as we begin to close out. I do want to ask, does the president have the power to unilaterally raise the debt ceiling? Well, interestingly enough, uh, Dan, the answer is not completely clear. The, uh, the U.S. Constitution grants the power of the purse to Congress, clearly, uh, and that includes the power and the obligation to pay the debts, quote-unquote. Um, that's Article One, Section 8. However, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution also states that the, quote, the validity of the public debt of the U.S. shall not be questioned, close quote. So proponents of presidential authority and executive authority argue that the president is bound to uphold the validity of the national debt. Uh, and as a consequence, and given uh, the budget cycle, given the fact that we're operating at a deficit, the argument goes that the debt ceiling can be ordered to be raised in order to be able to finance the national debt that has to be paid or to be repaid. Um, if it's not raised, the president is obliged to cut expenditures, and thereby the president violates the constitutional oath to faithfully execute the laws of Congress. So to some degree, the president, whoever it is, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, it's not, a, it's not in itself a partisan issue, but the president, if they're on the opposite side of the aisle from Congress, is caught between a rock and a hard place because either you go ahead and follow the, uh, the, the mandate of the 14th Amendment and honor the debt, or you go ahead and cut expenditures, which have already been appropriated, and the president constitutionally is obligated to carry those out. So that's where we have a difference of opinion. And as Shane and I have talked about in the past, during a debt ceiling fight back in the 90s, President Clinton argued that he did retain the power to raise the debt limit unilaterally to meet the constitutional obligation of the 14th Amendment. President Obama, some years later, indicated he did not have the authority to do that and acknowledged and conceded the power of the purse belongs to Congress. So this is as it's not quite as straightforward as you might imagine. And then, of course, again, as Shane and I have, have talked about in the past, there are all sorts of other um, machinations that you know Congress and the president are going to basically be talking about in order to to um, debate this issue, uh, which will be re a recurring one. We seem to go through this every two years, and I I'll defer to Shane on this, but I don't see any. Um, any movement to go ahead and, and solve the problem immediately. I think this is going to be a recurring issue henceforth for uh, for quite a while. Would that be fair to say, Shane? Yeah, no, I think uh, 
every once in a while you do get those calls that uh, uh, from senators represent that they realize that this is to some degree a ridiculous uh, fight to have uh, quite frequently and, you know, doesn't really do any good. Um, so there are calls for that, but I just don't see it happening at this time. The reality is, is that, um, you know, uh, there are people who want to use it as a inflection point to try and make uh, positive changes in their mind. That only means the conversation will continue, though, Tom, Shane, thank you both very much for dropping by top of the morning today to keep our listeners, our clients informed on this very important topic with it carries many implications. And I'm sure we'll follow up in the months to come to keep everyone informed on how this progresses, though. Thank you both again for your time today. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, guys. And again, today we have been joined by Tom McLaughlin, head of fixed income for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office, as well as Shane Lieberman, federal affairs manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy. I do want to point out to our listeners, especially our clients, a couple of related resources from the UBS chief investment office, the publication Debt Ceiling Deja Vu, which is now available up on UBS.com slash CIO. You can also reference UBS.com slash Washington Weekly for the latest insights from the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy on the debt ceiling. Though again, for UBS clients, please be sure to reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication Debt Ceiling Deja Vu directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO dash disclaimer. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.